Well, I learned this week in our church office that I have not done a particularly good job of letting people know that I actually grew up on a farm. Our, our new office administrator, Jana, was shocked when I revealed that. And I understand because to look at me, I probably am, you know, I don't, I don't look like a farmer. I always, people always told me at Bible school that I looked like the most like cliche city kid. I was good with tech. I didn't really like getting dirty. Um, but no, I actually grew up on a uh, medium-sized grain farm, but very much to uh, pretty much my whole family's chagrin, I was actually a really, really lazy teenager. Uh, and not only was I lazy, I actually had a tendency that even when I got off my butt to do things, I didn't do them particularly well. And so because of this, uh, my relationship with my dad was a little bit rocky at times because he would just come after me for being lazy and for not doing jobs particularly well. And at the time, I didn't understand, right? I just thought that he was being mean and that it was, you know, his work ethic and, and whatever. But as I've grown up and I can look back on those situations, I can see that what my dad was doing was not just being cruel and trying to come after me for something, but that it was an act of love, right? That he was trying to help me grow up, to, to have a work ethic, to actually be good at doing things and not just wanting to sit on my butt all day. Now, I tell this story just to make the simple point that if we ignore the character of people in authority over us, we can end up missing the whole point of the instructions that they give. So because as a teenager, I didn't realize that what my dad was doing was an act of love, it just felt like cruelty to me. But as I look now, it's clear that what he was doing was trying to be helpful. So just hold that thought for a second. Romans 15, 4. Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We need to believe that today. Very specifically, we need to believe that today because in order to get to the name that we're going to be studying this morning, we need to do the work of understanding what might be one of the most difficult stories in the entire Old Testament. If you have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. It's pretty close to the beginning, shouldn't be too far to get there. But in Genesis 22, we are dealing with the story where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his first or his, his only son, essentially, Isaac. The son who had been promised to him, the son through whom God had promised he would make Abraham into a great nation. So as we work through this story, we need to keep two things front of mind. First thing from that first story, we have to keep in mind that in order to understand the instructions and commands of God, we need to keep in mind his character as revealed all throughout scripture. So as we see a story where God makes a request that seems insane to us, we have to keep in mind God's goodness, God's love for his people that is evident on every single page of this book. We also have to keep in mind that, like Paul says in Romans 15, every word from this story was written for our encouragement. It was written for our instruction, and it was written to give us hope. So this week, as we work through an incredibly difficult story, we will come across our name, continuing our Knowing God by Name series, the name Jehovah Jireh. Or, if you want to be a little bit more accurate to a Hebrew pronunciation, Yahweh Yireh, which you will hear me use for the most part 
Latin people like to add J's to things. They didn't exist in Hebrew. Now we have two pronunciations. This name, uh, essentially translated, would mean the Lord will provide. But just like last week, we need to do the work of understanding this name in the context of the story in which it was given. If we just take these four English words, the Lord will provide, and try to just work out the meaning by looking at those four English words, I honestly think that we will miss entirely what this story was intended to teach us and why Abraham attributed this name to God. So like I said, we'll be in Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to look to them now. We're going to read the first 19 verses of this chapter as we start this morning. Reading from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies." And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So as we jump into this difficult story, we have another two things to hold in tension. The first is that as much as it makes us uncomfortable, God had every right to ask this of Abraham. He owns everything. He holds in his hand every life, 
and determines by his will the time of every death. Life and death are God's prerogatives. He can ask this of Abraham. And honestly, unless we consistently learn to read the Bible, keeping in mind that God owns everything, it can be very difficult to see his heart in stories like this. But the other side of this is that this was, as the text clearly says in verse 1, a test. There is no situation in which this story ends in human sacrifice. Isaac was always coming out of this alive. In fact, this is the final test that God gives Abraham. After this story, Abraham essentially disappears as being a major character. There's a couple little stories, but they're mostly focused on Isaac. This is kind of the the pinnacle, the climactic point of his story here in the book of Genesis. And this final test parallels and expands on his first test back in Genesis chapter 12 when God called him the first time. Because then God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, you need to leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Or how we might hear that, Abraham, you need to leave your past. You need to give up what has come behind and follow me for what lies ahead. But now it's Abraham, you need to give me your son, which represents his present and his future. God wants it all. He wants to know that Abraham was ready to give up everything, including that which was most precious to him. One just quick note, scholars figure that at this point, Isaac is somewhere between 13 and 30, a nice big range, but he's not a little kid, and he's not uh, a full, well, he's a fully grown adult in our minds, but in, in that culture, 30 was still a young man, so just keep that in mind as we go. But as we think about Abraham's willingness to give up everything, it's, it kind of drew my mind this week to a story in Luke chapter 18, the story of the rich young ruler. I'm just going to read that now. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to follow me around. In Luke chapter 18, we read, and a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You know, in this story, we see the opposite. The rich young ruler wasn't ready to give up the most precious thing. For him, it was his money. But Abraham was. And so must we be. In fact, I think it's fair to say that that to follow Christ, we must be willing to give up that which is most precious to us. And to try to hold on to it, honestly, would be foolish. Look at Jesus' response to the rich young ruler. He he says he's not willing to give up his money, and Jesus doesn't chase after him and go, oh, okay, you can keep your money, Just, just please follow me. Jesus isn't that desperate. He wants his followers to have him as their most sincere, their most supreme treasure. Anyways, we also need to notice the immediacy and the extent of Abraham's obedience. 
God calls. He says, sacrifice your son Isaac to me. And the text says that Abraham rose early the next morning, right away. There wasn't hesitation. There wasn't waiting. He was ready to follow what God called him to. And more than that, it says that he traveled for three days. He had three days to give up to decide to run from God, to turn around, to go back, to not even think of following through on what God had called him to. But Abraham doesn't even seem to waver. And I think we need to ask why. Because for those of you who are parents, this might seem a little horrific, a little disturbing that this character would be so willing to go through with this. But again, we need to think back to the story that I told at the beginning. Abraham knew the character of God. Abraham knew that God was a God who kept his promises. And God told him that it was through Isaac that his family would ultimately expand and would grow into a great nation. Abraham knew God, and he believed that he would keep his promises no matter what. And the way that we know this for sure is following one of the best rules of reading the Bible, which is that if a story is ever commented on later in the Bible, we should trust what the Bible says about itself. In Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews, in commenting on this story, writes, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's key. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham truly believed that this story ended with Isaac alive. Whether it meant that he followed through, he sacrificed his son as a burnt offering and the Lord raised him from the dead, or, as we'll see it plays out, the Lord stops him. And I think we see hints of this in the story as well. For example, in verse 5, we see that Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you seems throughout the whole thing, he is sure that when he comes back down from that mountain, his son is going to be with him. We also see, as the story continues, that Isaac seems to be in agreement with what is happening, which I think is incredible evidence of a father who taught his son what it means to obey God. Right In verse 9, as it's talking about the altar being built and Isaac being bound, there's no mention of struggle. Isaac was old enough, strong enough. If he wanted to, he could have run away. He could have. He doesn't. He was complicit. And it's crazy, but what this is saying is that Isaac was ready to die if that was what the Lord wanted of him. And that that kind of obedience can blow our minds because we're so protective of our own lives. But it is an incredible, incredible picture of what happens when somebody understands that God is their greatest treasure. This is the place, though, in the story where the tension almost makes you need to pause, right? So so Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. He travels three days. He takes Isaac. They go up the mountain. They build the altar. They lay out the wood. Isaac is bound, and Abraham is standing over him with the knife, ready to follow through on this command. There's just this pause. But then, like a burst of light breaking through the clouds, we read, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven. He said, Abraham, 
Abraham. As we talked about last week, it's very likely that this character we see throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, is God himself represented in a physical way for his people throughout the Old Testament. Then we see what he says to Abraham here in verses 11 and 12. Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And the angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham has stopped at the last moment. And you can almost imagine the relief, right? So, so we know Abraham was confident that he was coming back down that mountain with his son one way or another. But the Lord stops him right at the last moment. He didn't even know he was being tested until this point, right? Abraham didn't know what was happening. He was just being obedient. But what we see here in the words from the angel of the Lord is the purpose of the test. The point in this whole thing was so that God could confirm with Abraham that he feared him. So we need to talk about that term. Because quite honestly, I've heard... Far too many pastors try to lessen the weight of this term, fear of the Lord or fearing God. And I often they'll, they'll talk about it as, oh, it's just being respectful. You know, we, we respect God. And that's what I've heard a lot growing up in the church. But I think this story alone, and quite honestly, I think most of the mentions throughout the Bible, don't allow us to think about fear as simply respect. And let me just show you why. Um, I respect Rusty. He's not even here and I'm complimenting him. I respect Pastor Rusty a lot, but if he asked me to sacrifice my son, I'm not doing that. I'm probably going to call the police. (laughs) So it can't just be respect, because there is not one person in this room who would sacrifice their firstborn child for the sake of somebody that they respect. It's something greater. And in trying to work through that this week, I came across, I think, the best illustration I have I'm directly stealing it. I am ripping off John Piper. You can go look this up. It's his illustration. I'm just going to read it word for word because it's really good. So Piper writes, The clearest illustration I have ever seen of this kind of good fear was the time one of my sons looked a German shepherd in the eye. We were visiting a family from our church. My son Karsten was about seven years old. They had a huge dog that stood eye to eye with a seven-year-old. He was friendly and Karsten had no problem making friends. But when we sent Karsten back to the car to get something we had forgotten, he started to run, and the dog galloped behind him with a low growl. And of course, this frightened Karsten. But the owner said, Karsten, why don't you just walk? The dog doesn't like it when people run away from him. If Karsten hugged the dog, he was friendly, and would even lick his face. But if he ran from the dog, the dog would growl, and fill Karsten with fear. That is a picture of what it means to fear the Lord. God means for his power and holiness to kindle fear in us, not to drive us from him, but to drive us to him. Fearing God means fearing to abandon him as our greatest security and satisfaction. This is what Abraham knew, and this is what the test confirmed. Abraham knew that no matter how terrifying the thing that God commanded of him was, it was always going to be scarier to be running away from God. Obedience was the safest place to be. And it kind of makes me wonder, how would we do if God tested us in this way? 
If he asked of us, do you fear me? Do we fear the result of our rebellion? Do we fear falling away from our God? Or to to use the language of Philippians 2, do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Because we understand that to flee from God is a terrifying thing. Or to flip it, right? Do we approach God fearlessly because of what Christ has done? We need both. The fear of God teaches us that to go near him is to be in the safest place that we can be. But to run from him should fill us with fear. One last comment on this test of Abraham. God always knew the result, right? This test did not teach God anything new about the character of Abraham, about Abraham's commitment to him. This test, like every test that the Lord sends to his people, was for the sake of Abraham. It was to test or to teach him, to train him, to draw him nearer to the Lord, in the same way that every test the Lord sends to us is to teach us, to train us, and to draw us nearer to him. Well, as the story wraps up in verses 13 through 19, we see at the end that God confirms promises that he has already made to Abraham, but now adding the word surely. It's a final confirmation. The promises had been made, but with this test, God puts the full weight of his promise behind it. Abraham, surely I will make you into a great nation. Surely I will bless you. But let's look at the name. The name that Abraham gives to God in verse 14. Read, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Yahweh Yireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. So before we now, with the story in the back of our minds, get to understanding what this name means in this story, let's be clear about what it doesn't, because I've seen this word, this name, used in a lot of ways. So firstly, this is not a name that is talking about God's extravagant provision, Or, if I can be a little more blunt with it, this is not a verse that supports the prosperity gospel. This is not a verse that promises God's people that if they just have enough faith, or if they just give enough money, that he will always give them all the money and all the health and all their dreams will come true. That is not taught here in Genesis 22, and that's not taught anywhere in all of Scripture. Secondly, This name, which when I was starting to prepare for this sermon, what I assumed it was going to be, is not actually talking about just basic daily provision. So I would say that that against the other one, it's not saying that God will give us everything we want. And now here, it's actually not even saying that God will give us everything that we need. Though, that is true. That is taught elsewhere in Scripture. I especially think of Luke chapter 12, where Jesus looks at the birds and he says, hey, look at the birds. They essentially contribute nothing, but yet God feeds them. How much more will he feed you, his children? That is true of God, but it's not what this is teaching here. And finally, if you're into modern Christian music, you may have heard the song Gyra by Maverick City Music. I think what they take this name to mean in their use in the song is that God will provide us everything we need by he himself being our portion, which again is true but is not what that name is getting at in this story. Okay, so what then? So getting into the Hebrew is helpful. 
um, our translators want to make our Bibles readable for us. So sometimes they don't translate things super rigidly and literally. Because if you translate Yahweh Yireh directly from Hebrew to English, it means Yahweh sees, which probably feels pretty similar to the name that we used last week. But there's a different connotation. It sees in the sense of Yahweh sees to it, right? We would use that phrase. Oh, oh, you know, the dishes have to get done. Okay, well, I'll see to that. I'll be the one to get that done. So it's like Abraham is saying, God asked me to bring a sacrifice, but he will see to it that the sacrifice is completed. He will provide the sacrifice. So with that little helpful tidbit and a bit of a closer eye on the story, I think we can start to see that while Abraham was living out a story of the sacrifice of his son, the Holy Spirit was intending to show us of the time when God would sacrifice his son. If we start to pay attention to some of the details, we start to see that Isaac bears a lot of similarities to Jesus. We see details of Christ's life being shown early here in the life of Isaac, right? Because Isaac was the beloved son of his father. The beloved son of the father of God's people being asked by God to be sacrificed. Sounds a little similar. We also notice in a weird detail for the story to give that Abraham gives Isaac the wood to carry up the mountain. Isaac himself bears the wood on which he would be sacrificed, much in the same way that our Savior bore his cross up onto Golgotha to be sacrificed. We see that Isaac was complicit and submissive. He was bowing to his father's will, just like Christ in the garden says, not my will, but yours be done. God the Father never forced his son to be the sacrifice. He did it willingly. And we also see that Isaac was to be put to death ultimately by the will of his father, right? Abraham had to be the one to follow through. And even though with Jesus, it was human hands that put him on the cross, we get a, bit, a bigger glimpse into the bigger picture in Isaiah chapter 3, or in Isaiah chapter 53, sorry, verse 10, where it reads, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We'll just stop there with that one. But ultimately, Jesus was put to death by the will of his father. But then there's a critical shift in who Isaac should remind us of as soon as he gets laid down on the altar. And there needs to be, because nobody could ever be Jesus before Jesus. He has to fall short, and he does. Because as soon as Isaac is laid down on the altar, he should start to remind us of us. Right at that point, bound on this wooden altar, his father standing over him with a knife, Isaac was condemned to die. Which, I mean, this is a, the most like classic Awana or Kids Club memory verse, but Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are condemned to die with no hope. Yet, as we see in the story, by no effort of Isaac's, a substitute was provided. This ram caught in a bush right by the altar. And in fact, I think if we have a good view of God's sovereignty, we realize that it was God's work. 
He owns every animal. He determines where every animal will be. That ram was caught there at precisely that moment because God was providing a substitute. He provided the substitute for the sacrifice that he required. And that word substitute, I think, is what this name is really wanting to push us to. And I think that that word substitute is the heart of the gospel. Those of you who've heard me preach enough know it pretty much always ends up here. (laughs) And I think that's a good thing. I think that's the instructions that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 24 when he taught his disciples that everything in the Bible ultimately points to him. So we come again to the gospel as we see it in Genesis 22. And yes, I, I pray that each one of you has heard this message before, though maybe some of you haven't. The message of the gospel is the most important message you'll ever hear. So for those of you who have heard it, it's good to hear it again. And it's good to learn how to share it. So behind me, I threw up kind of the four categories that I use when I'm thinking through presenting it and kind of track along, see how that works if you just want a little bit of help in in building your own ability to share it. But the message of the gospel, right? So the message that God is creator. He created the universe. He created our world. And he created mankind as the crowning jewel of his creation, God is love. He loves his creation, but he is also holy and just. Well, mankind, we acted in rebellion. We chose what we wanted to do. We rebelled against the king of the universe. And in doing so, we destroyed our relationship with him. We doomed ourselves to an eternity separated from God in hell. But God, in his great mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place as our substitute to absorb the wrath of God against sin so that God could be just in punishing sin and yet gracious in freeing us from it. And in Christ's death, he made it possible that by believing in the sacrifice of Christ in turning from our sin and believing that God has done what is necessary to save us, we can be saved simply through faith, not by work, so that none of us can boast. So you heard that. I, I intentionally emphasized it. Christ died in our place as a substitute. Now that idea, there's a big theological term for it. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Three really big words. You don't need those. Here's a summary of what that means. It means that our sin is covered because the penalty for it is paid by another. Our sin is covered because the penalty for it is paid by somebody else. And like I said, I believe this is the heart of the gospel. This is how we are saved, but it's a doctrine that is unfortunately under attack in the church today. There are many who have started to call this divine child abuse, that God would demand the sacrifice of his own son. There are some that try to claim that Christ's death was just an example for us. It just showed us how to be self-sacrificial, just showed us how to love people well, but it didn't actually accomplish anything. Or some that will say that, that it's simply to gain victory over Satan. And both of those are, are good and true, but not without this not without the removal of our sin. So they they essentially want to claim that God doesn't require sacrifice. Yet, if I can be frank, the entire Bible points to the fact that he does. Sin requires death. 
because God is just. Yet God in his mercy saw to that death himself. So if we lose penal substitutionary atonement, we lose the gospel. Right, because the key way in which our relationship with God is restored comes at the cross. It comes not just because a good man died, but because the Son of God himself bore the weight of our sin. He didn't just set an example. He went to the cross, knowing full well what was coming, and he took the wrath of God for your sake, for my sake. He bore the punishment that was meant for us. We should have been hung on that cross, each one of us, executed for treason against the king of the universe. Yet he gave up his son to pay the price for traitors. It's justice and it's mercy. It's grace and it's wrath at the same time. It's the heart of the gospel. It's how we are made right with God. It's how we are saved because we have no right to stand before God unless somebody has taken all of the stuff that's messed up inside of us and paid the price for it. So what then? What then does Yahweh Yireh mean to us? This name is a beautiful reminder that Christ died in our place. So when we see the name Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide, it is a reminder not that the Lord will provide for our temporary physical needs, but that the Lord has made provision for our eternal spiritual need. It means that we don't need to be good enough to come to God, but that God has seen to it that evil people can be in relationship with him. It means that we don't need to have perfect faith, but that God has seen to it that our feeble faith, what little we are able to muster, is supported by his strength, is enabled by his spirit, that we are held by him. He has seen to our faith. It means that we don't have to helplessly fight against our sinful natures on our own, but that in Christ, God has seen to it that we can live holy lives in obedience to his commands. All of this and more was seen to when our Savior Jesus carried his cross up a hill and shed his blood to appease the wrath of God and purchase our redemption. So if you aren't a Christian in this room today, or if you have in the past called yourself one, but you're running from God, you're trying to ignore his commands, I implore you, I beg with you on account of these truths that we have looked at, turn to him. Look to Christ. It's not good works. It's not being a good person. It's not attending church a certain amount of times. Look to Jesus. He's paid the cost. It's a fearful thing to run away from God, but it is a wonderfully freeing thing to flee to him. And if you are a believer... I pray all of you are. I implore you to believe that when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it. Your salvation has been seen to. Your Savior was your substitute. You are eternally safe from the wrath of God. 
So draw near to him. There is nothing to fear in drawing near to him. And church, let us seek to be a church who knows and obeys the God who for our sake has demanded a sacrifice, but who has seen to it himself. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly Father, what could we have done to bridge the gap that we created? What hope did we have to come into your presence, to be called your children? By what account would you ever adopt us into your family? Lord, we had nothing, but you gave us your son. Lord Jesus, thank you that you willingly bore the wrath of God on our behalf, that you took our sins, that you gave us your righteousness so that we could be made right with a perfect, holy, just, loving God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enable us to live our lives as though this is true. That for those in this room who know Christ already, that we would rest in the beautiful grace and we would draw near to our gracious, gracious Father. And for those who do not yet know Christ, we pray that you would draw them to the Father today. Our great Heavenly Father, you are our provider. You have seen to it that we could be made right with you. And we must be eternally grateful for what you have done. Thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Amen.